Good morning, everyone. I'll just add my greetings uh, to everyone else's uh, that's already been up here today, and it's a joy to welcome you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I was just struck this morning by our worship and how good it is for us to be together and, and uh, singing praises to the Lord together. So it's a joy for me to be here with you all this morning, and we're going to continue today in our look at the life of David and the theme of the uh, Lord looks at the heart. And today we're looking at Second Samuel chapter seven. That's our text for today. Uh, as we return uh, to the events of David's life. We've taken a little bit of a break over the last month from the narrative of David's life. And so we return to that today in 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you'd like to turn there in your own Bibles, you can read along. But let's pray before we go to the word of the Lord together this morning. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the gift of your word. And we pray this morning that Whatever you have to say to us today, uh, that we would be ready to receive it. Lord, would you open our hearts uh, to hear from you this morning. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, that you would be at work in our lives. Lord, we trust uh, that the reading and hearing and preaching of your word, that it, that it changes us. Um, and so we pray for that today, Lord, that you would change us once again. We ask all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We're going to be reading all of chapter 7. It's a little bit long, but, uh, but worth reading. So hear with me the word of the Lord. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. And Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. And wherever I have moved with all the Israelites... Did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. 
Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, and your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. And then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family, that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great are you, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel? the one nation on the earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever and you, Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised so that your name will be great forever. And then people will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. And now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Even as I read through that passage just now, I was reminded that there is power in the name of the Lord. And and I hope you felt that as, as we saw the name of the Lord said time and time again by David, you, sovereign Lord, you, sovereign Lord. It was hitting me, even as I was reading it, that there is power in the name of the Lord. Uh, We're returning this morning to the events and the life of King David, as we said. And and the passage we're looking at today, it's, it's one of the high points in David's life. In fact, it may be the high point in David's life. Everything else that he's done or that has happened to him up to this point has, has been leading to this, to where he finds himself right now. He's the king of all of Israel, and he's living in his palace in Jerusalem, the city that, that he has founded and made his capital, with God having given him rest from all of his enemies around him. And this is as good as it's going to get for David, as we will see coming soon. And it's been a long journey to get here. It's been years since he was plucked from obscurity by the prophet Samuel and anointed as king. It's been years since he defeated the giant Goliath in head-to-head combat. And since then, he's become a successful military leader. He, He has spent years on the run in the wilderness. He's united the tribes of Judah and Israel into one kingdom under his rule. And he's established his capital in Jerusalem. And when we last saw him uh, several weeks ago, he had just brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel with this huge parade. And there were sacrifices and there was music and there was food. It was this huge feast. It was a, a, a huge national event and celebration and worship. And David was presiding over all of it. And he was dancing before the Lord with all of his might. 
This is the last image that we had of David uh, where we left off in this sermon series. That's where we saw him. And now he's at rest. Everybody else has gone home with the blessing of the Lord, and David has gone home too. And he is in his palace. He's only about 10 kilometers away geographically from where he grew up tending his father's sheep, but his life couldn't be any more different than where he started. And so David is sitting in his house of cedar. That was a luxury item back then. This is a very, very nice palace. Cedar was, uh, came from the forest of Lebanon, which was far away. And the point is that no expense has been spared in building David this palace. He is doing very well for himself, in case you have any questions about that. And while David is sitting there, considering his surroundings, looking at where he is and where he's come from, Considering his newfound wealth and power and influence, he comes up with this great idea. And he just knows this is the right thing to do. This is the best thing that he can do at this point. David is going to build God a house. David is going to build God a house. He looks around him at everything he has going for him. He's nicely settled in this palace made of cedar. And yet, the Ark of the Covenant is still being kept in a tent. A very nice tent, but it's still a tent. And so David thinks, I am living in a better house than the Lord. Something is out of order here. And so David starts to think about building God a house, a temple. This is what David wants to do. A big, impressive, beautiful building that would house the Ark that would be the central place for Israel's worship, a permanent structure worthy of the living God. Now, some of you may remember last month when we were talking about David bringing the ark up to Jerusalem, that this was an important symbolic move for him as king. It was was high on his list of priorities in the early days of his reign because the ark represented to Israel their relationship with the Lord their ongoing relationship with the Lord. It was a reminder to them of God's mighty deeds in their history, and especially the story of the Exodus, that God had delivered this people from slavery in Egypt. He had had rescued them, and he had sustained them through 40 years of wilderness wandering. He had led them the entire time as they went, and he provided for their needs. He defeated their enemies before them, And in the midst of all of that, God made a covenant with them, becoming their God, and they became his people. God bound himself to them as their God through that covenant. And finally, God brought them to the land that he had promised them, the land which they now inhabited, the land which David now ruled as king. And so the ark was a reminder to Israel of all of this and more that God had done in their past. But it was also a sign of God's ongoing presence with them, that God remained with them. God is not just a God of history, as important as history is. It's not just our lot in life to point backward in time and say, look what God used to do. I don't know if you all ever feel that way when you're reading through scripture, when you're looking at the miracles that are reported there, that we have to say, look what God used to do our powerful God. And it's hard to maybe look and see God working in the present. But the ark was assigned to Israel that God was still with them, still present and active among them. 
in the life of Israel in the time of David, just as he's still present and active with us as his people today. We do have a historical faith. It's, it's based on events that really happened in the past. Most importantly, Jesus' death and resurrection. This was, these were historical events. But our faith isn't purely historical, meaning that, that God didn't stop working after the resurrection and now we're just sitting around waiting for Jesus' return. God is still fully present with us through his Holy Spirit. God is still working for justice and peace in this world. God is still calling people to faith in himself. He is still doing the work of sanctification in us, of making us more like Christ through his Holy Spirit. And the ark's presence in Jerusalem reminded Israel that God continued to be with them just as he had always been. And not only that, but the ark was also an affirmation of God's promises for Israel's future. Not only was he with them now, but he had promised never to leave them or forsake them. And so this is why it was so important to David to bring the ark up to Jerusalem, to remind the Israelites that their worship of God was to be at the center of their national life. Even David's role as the king of Israel served a similar purpose. It was meant, he was meant to represent the sovereign and gracious rule of God himself. And David knew it. He knew that his kingship was not ultimately about him, but it was about the living God. And so in David's mind, what could be better, now that the ark was in Jerusalem, what could be better than building a temple for the ark, a house for God? He saw it as, as a way to honor the Lord. And it was also a way to permanently establish this relationship between God and Israel right there in Jerusalem, in David's capital, so that it would be for all people to see, all of the Israelites. Whenever they came to Jerusalem, they would see this temple. They would be reminded of the relationship with the Lord. David wanted to do this great thing for God, to build a house for him in the middle of his people, to establish his presence there. And it kind of makes sense, doesn't it, if you think about it? It kind of makes sense that David would do this, that he would be the one to build a temple for the Lord. After all, he will be remembered or is remembered as Israel's greatest king. He is known as a man after God's own heart. Why shouldn't David build the temple of the Lord? And David even goes to Nathan, the, the new prophet in the story after Samuel, to seek his thoughts on the matter, to get his blessing. And Nathan thinks it's a good idea too. He thinks it makes sense as well. He says, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. In other words, Nathan's saying to David, look, if you think this is a good idea, then just go for it, because God will bless it, just like he's blessed everything else you've done, David. So, so far, so good. They go to bed that night thinking they're going to start building the temple the next day. But then the story takes a bit of an unexpected turn, as we've read, because God speaks to Nathan in the middle of the night with a message for David, which is essentially this, you think you're going to build me a house? <laughs> think again, I'm the one building you a house. You think you're the one who's going to establish my place amongst the people of Israel? Think again. Because I am the one establishing your place among the people of Israel. 
What God says in verses 11 and 16 of the passage we read are this. He says, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. And then he says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. This is something that God is going to do for David. And God walks through all of this this message, this revelation that he gives to Nathan, and he points out his past and his present with Israel, saying, look at all of the things that I have done. Look at what I have already done as the sovereign Lord for my people Israel. And he says, in all of that time, from that day to this, I have been in a tent, and that has been just fine. And whenever have I asked someone to build me a house of cedar? He reminds David that he's the one who has brought him to where he is. He is the one who has taken David from being a shepherd to being a king. And he makes promises about the future of Israel and the future of David's line. And as we read through this message, this revelation to David, it becomes apparent quickly that God is talking about himself, that God is the subject of this story. God is the one who is doing all of the action. Everything that has happened already has been at the initiative of God himself. It's worth noting that that while there is a tone of correction and even a bit of a reprimand to David and God's message, David not being allowed to build the temple isn't isn't described as being some sort of punishment uh, for planning it or suggesting it. It just seems that this was never in the cards in the first place. This was not what God had in mind for David. But it's here that we start to get a hint of the problem with David's plan and why God reacts so strongly to it. Because everything up to this point in Israel's history has been brought about by God's gracious sovereignty. It's been brought about by God's action and by God's initiative. And everything up to this point in David's life has been brought about by God's gracious sovereignty, by God's action, and by God's initiative. And now all of a sudden, David is king, and immediately he decides to do this thing himself. This building project will be brought about by David's sovereignty as king. It's his action. It's his initiative. And this is the problem. It's telling at the beginning of this passage that neither David nor Nathan feel the need to consult God about this. I don't know if you all noticed that at all. But David and and Nathan are talking about God in the third person. Maybe we should do this thing for God. God needs a house. He's not living in the right place. And neither of them thinks to ask God what God thinks about it. Now, that's not to say that we have to pray before we take any sort of action in life, but when making decisions regarding God and regarding the worship of God and regarding God's people, then it's good to seek the Lord's guidance before moving ahead. And as God says here, what David is seeking to do is not something that God requires or something that he has even ever requested. This is not something that God has asked for. Again, this is all David's idea, David's plan. David's initiative. David is right in thinking that something has gotten out of order here, but it has nothing to do with palaces and tents and who's living in which one. David has gotten things turned upside down because it seems he has forgotten his place a bit. Even the end result that he desires, David sees it as his job to secure God's place in Israel, but the Lord is quick to correct him. He does not need David's help with this. He does not need David's help with this. 
What is going on with David in this story? What is going on with David in this story? Where is this coming from for him? So far, most of the time that we've seen him, he's been putting his trust in the Lord. He's been trusting God to save him, to deliver him, to fight his battles for him. And David has also been a man on the move ever since we've met him. Whether defeating Goliath or on the run from Saul, his life has been full of action. There has always been something for David to do. However, our passage today begins with David in a different posture. David is settled in his palace, and the Lord has given him rest from all his enemies. He is settled. He is at rest. And to be in this place is a gift from the Lord. But like for many of us, as a man of action, it is a gift that David finds hard to receive. You can relate. (laughs) It's hard to receive the gift of the Lord's rest in our lives. Rest is an idea that runs throughout Scripture. We see it in the very beginning, in the creation story in Genesis. We're told in Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, by the seventh day, God had finished the work that he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. And then God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it he rested from all of the work of creating that he had done. The Lord rested. Sometimes I think we wonder what this is about. Did did God get tired? Uh, Did creating the universe wear him out in some way? Had Had he exhausted himself with all of this activity? Did he need to renew his strength? like we do after manual labor. Well, no, of course not. That's not the case here. This is, this is about a work being completed and about taking a step back to find satisfaction in that work, this completed work, and to enjoy it. When God finished his work of creation, he looked around and he saw that it was very good, very good. And God was pleased with all that he had made. And so he rested And he enjoyed it. And we see also in this story in Genesis, the establishment of the Sabbath day, that God blesses the seventh day of the week and he makes it holy because it was on this day that he rested from his labor. It was the day that he enjoyed and found satisfaction in his creation. And so he wanted to establish that forever. And then God instructed his people to observe the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. It's even one of the Ten Commandments. It was to be a day of rest, a day that we step away from our work and our labor to enjoy and find satisfaction in the work that we've already done. For us, it does renew our strength, and as humans, we need that, but it's also about more than that, about allowing ourselves to rest in the Lord. It is God's gift to us to rest in this way. By having the Sabbath be a weekly event, it it gets woven into the fabric of our lives if we observe it, allowing us to regularly step away from our labors, from our work, and to enjoy the gift of the Lord's rest. More than that, it allows us to enjoy and find satisfaction in the Lord himself. The more we read scripture, the more we find that the Lord wants to give us rest, And also, the more that we find that the true rest that we need is found in our relationship with the Lord. The more we walk with Christ through this life, 
The more we look to him and we find our identity and our self-worth in him, the more we put our trust in him and his atoning work on the cross for our salvation, the more we will find rest in this life. The greatest we promise that we have about this comes from Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What we find here in this, in this uh, verse is an invitation to sit in God's presence, to sit in the Lord's presence, to put away our fears and strivings for a time and simply enjoy fellowship with him. Friends, the Lord wants to give us rest. He wants to give us rest from our work and labor, rest from everything that makes us weary in this life. Rest so that we can find joy and satisfaction. Rest that we find in him. And this is the same kind of rest that the Lord was giving to David. A chance for David to find satisfaction in the fact that he was king. That finally his life was no longer in danger. He was no longer being pursued. He was no longer fighting battles with his enemies. Everything he had been working for, or God had been working to establish for him, was done. It was complete. And David could rest. Even for David to rest in the Lord himself. He had given David rest in the present and he promises David rest in the future. But David, as we said, had a certain restlessness about him. And he had a hard time receiving God's gift for him. So rather than enjoy it, rather than than spend some time speaking with the Lord and resting in his presence, he immediately starts looking for things to do. Something that he can accomplish. And he lands upon this idea of building God a temple. There's something inside of us as human beings that likes to build things. We like to build things. Whether it's literal buildings, whether it's companies, whether it's institutions, whatever it may be, if we want to impress people, if we want to show something for ourselves, then we like to build something. And the bigger, the better. And the longer it lasts, the better. And it's not always coming from a bad place. God made us to create. God made us to build. But the question is, why are we doing it? I think we live in a place that proves that point. Prague is filled with big, old, beautiful buildings, and people spend lots of money just to come here and see these buildings. And we live on a continent with lots of big, old, beautiful buildings that people have built to make names for themselves. This is what David has in mind when he proposes his building project. Like many of God's people, David sanctifies his plan by saying, it's about God. I want to make sure God is living in at least as good of a house as I'm living in, if not a better one. But he's saying he's really doing this for the Lord. But there's probably, and there's probably truth to that, but there's also something in this that's about David, which is why God calls him out. And to his credit, David responds faithfully in prayer. Eugene Peterson makes much of the fact that David goes in and he sits before the Lord. He sits before the Lord, symbolizing David's submission to God. It's an act that shows David's willingness to back away from his big idea, to back away from his actions and initiatives, and to put his trust again in God's gracious sovereignty. And as we see, David throughout that prayer keeps saying, Sovereign Lord, Sovereign Lord, Sovereign Lord. 
He's no longer talking about God in the third person, but he is addressing God personally, talking to God the way that he should be. And in his prayer of response to God, David essentially echoes back all that God has said in his message to David through Nathan. It's a prayer of thanksgiving and of proclamation, recalling the great works of the Lord in the past and in the present, and calling God to be faithful to his promises in the future. David has learned his lesson, at least for now, and he has returned to God's rest. And here we see the benefits of the rest that God offers to us. When we rest in the Lord, it it reorients our life toward him. We are reminded of of who we are, who we, we are created to be. We are reminded of whose we are. We are reminded of the grace and love that God has extended toward us. And we're released of the burdens of constantly needing to strive and to accomplish and to build and to prove ourselves and our worth to the world. It reminds us that it's not up to us to save the world or to establish God's name where we are. That's God's work in Jesus Christ. When we rest in God, we can rest in the assurance of God's love and acceptance that are ours in Christ. That our worth comes from the fact that we belong to God and that we are his children. And when we sit in God's presence in prayer and fellowship with him, when we submit ourselves to his gracious rule in our lives, then we know better how he is directing us, where he wants to lead us and guide us. My Old Testament professor in seminary, a woman named Ellen Davis, when she was reflecting on this passage, she says that our best model for someone who entered into God's rest is Christ himself during his earthly life, that we constantly see in the Gospels that Jesus was going off by himself to quiet places to pray and to speak with his heavenly Father and to find rest in him. And we should follow his example. But she also points out that it's good for us to find people closer to home who have learned the secret of entering God's rest. And she encourages us to look around for the people in our worshiping communities, in our congregation, uh, the Christians around us, people who are relaxed, spiritually speaking, the people who don't take themselves too seriously, the people who have a joy and lightness about them, even though they may have weighty responsibilities or deep troubles in life. We should look for the people who take pleasure in God's company. We should find those people and we should learn from them. For her, she says she learned much from her interactions with the church in South Sudan She says that she didn't expect to have fun with people in this place because of all that they had endured and suffered, and yet she was pleasantly surprised that these were people who had all suffered greatly in life in different ways, but they held on to an abiding joy and trust in the Lord. They were an example to her of people who had entered the Lord's rest. To be sure, finding rest in the Lord isn't about being passive. It's not about just sitting around and waiting for God to do everything for us. But it's about remembering the order of things, the way they should be. As Davis points out, we follow the pattern of Jesus' ministry, or we should follow the pattern of Jesus' ministry in our life. First, rest in God. Then, serve God's people. And then again, rest in God. First, rest in God, and then serve God's people, and then again, rest in God. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He says, the Christian life is a gloriously active life, as the Holy Spirit does the work of Christ in and through us, 
No, there's no danger that as we sit before the Lord, our legs will atrophy and we'll never be able to get up again. But there is great danger in getting so caught up uh, in our plans, our God plans, that we forget all about God. That is a risk to us as Christians. Friends, God invites us into his rest And it is his gracious gift to us, even and especially in all of the busyness of this life. And we don't enter it to our own loss. To close today, uh, there's one more piece of this passage that, that needs noting. Because this passage represents a significant moment in David's life. But it's also significant in God's overarching plan for the redemption of the world because of its messianic promise. God is going to raise up one of David's offspring and establish his throne forever. And it is Jesus, referred to throughout the Gospels as the son of David, who is the fulfillment of this promise. And while God says here that he is establishing David's house and throne, it's really God's own kingdom that he is building and establishing. And it's his son, Jesus, the crucified and risen one, who has been placed on that throne. And he shall reign forever and ever. And it's this same Jesus who has invited us to come to him when we are weary and burdened and to enter into his rest. And it's because of Jesus Christ and the promise of his everlasting kingdom that we can pray boldly like David did, proclaiming the mighty deeds of the Lord, past, present, and future. For David, he looked back to the Exodus And he looked around at God's taking him from being shepherd to being king. And he looked ahead to God's promise to establish his line forever. But for us, we can look back to Jesus' death and the forgiveness of our sins and how he has brought us from death to life. And we can look around at how God is at work in our lives now and how far he has brought us. And we can look forward to his return when he will make all things right and when we enter into his eternal rest. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for the gift of your rest and that you long to give us that gift. Lord, that you have invited us to enter into your rest. And Lord, we confess that it is hard for us to do that. Other ways of of serving you, of being with you, seem, seem to make more sense, that we might honor you by doing so many things for you all the time. And yet, Lord, you invite us to come and spend time with you, to fellowship with you, to have communion with you. So, Lord, forgive us when we get our lives out of order. We pray that, that we would come back to you and reorient our lives towards you. Lord, that we would enter your rest and then go and serve your people. And then again, enter your rest. Lord, by your grace, would you help us to live this way? And we thank you for all you have done for us in Jesus Christ, your son. And we pray in his name, amen.